It's really awesome seeing everybody just raising their hands in worship or just putting their hands closer to the heaters. I'm not sure. Either way, it works. Praise the Lord for heat. Uh, so when I first came to Christianity, when I first came to faith in Jesus, I was 22 years old, and, and my understanding was very simple. My understanding of the gospel was very simple, and, and my understanding of the gospel was, was confused and misguided in, in large part. Uh, many of you have heard my story or parts of it. Uh, I was married once before, uh, before I knew Brittany, before I knew Jesus. I was married uh, for two years, and, and my wife was leaving me. And in the midst of that, I went to Outward for the first time and heard the gospel in a way I'd never heard the gospel before, and I put my faith in Jesus. And I started to follow Jesus. And it was my understanding that when a person became a Christian, things got better. Things got put together. Well, I looked at Christians that I knew, and they seemed to have their life put together. They seemed to have things figured out. Uh, they always seemed to have a smile, and they always, for some unknown reason, wore pastel colors. I, I, I didn't know why, but I thought maybe it's just something that happens in the process of sanctification. Uh, outward was a little bit different. Uh, I didn't see as many pastels, but, but this was my understanding that Christians had everything figured out, that, it, that, that things went well, and I thought, well, it must be that when you put your faith in Jesus, he kind of works out those details, and he gets rid of the struggles, and he gets rid of the turmoil, and he gets rid of the hardship. Many of you are smiling already because you know how mistaken I was, right? Very mistaken, very simple understanding. The problem is, as I, as I came to Jesus, things didn't get better, right? My wife was still leaving me. And in fact, as I started talking about Jesus all the time, she ran faster. She left faster, I think, uh, it actually, it was getting even worse. Things were getting even worse. And, and here we have in Ephesians, Paul writing this letter. And if we, if we remember what was said just back in verse 13, Paul says, so uh, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison to this church he planted. Just imagine if your pastor were thrown in prison, not knowing if, if death awaits him or not. By the way, if the police show up and ask who your lead pastor is, I, I would ask you to join with me in pointing at Tim. So we'll just sort that out now. Just, I don't think they're coming, but just in case, we'll work those details out now. And, and we'll be distraught for you, Tim. We will pray ceaselessly. Uh, so their pastor is in jail. He's writing them this letter. And, and the, the, the hope is that he would write a letter and says, hey, I'm going to be released tomorrow. I'll come and I'll see you soon. Right? Jesus has this under control. He's going to work out these details. But it's not. That's not the tone of this letter. He can't assure them that because that may not be what happens. He may be staring at his death. Ultimately, Paul would spend a lot of time in prison and suffer many things, being beaten, 
and shipwrecked and, and all the things that he goes through. Uh, so he can't give them the assurance that things are going to get easier or better. And in fact, it's, it's worse. It's worse than we think. It, he, he's, he's not writing to assure them of a safe return. He's, he's writing to say that I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to continue to suffer. You too may suffer. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, Paul. We want you to remove the suffering. But he's not removing the suffering. He's saying don't lose heart in the midst of the suffering that I'm enduring for you. Don't be discouraged because of what I'm going through. Keep doing the things which God has called us to do. And from prison, in his Roman prison, Paul gets on his knees. He says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Right, he gets down on his knees and he begins to pray for the Ephesians. He begins to pray for their church in the midst of his suffering. He begins to pray and then in in verse 17 we see the content of that prayer. Uh, in the second half of 17, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Oh, in fact, in, in verse 16, I'm sorry, I skipped that. Uh, uh, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Then he goes on to say, uh, you being rooted and grounded in love so that you may have the strength to comprehend. And so there's, there's something here about the inner being, which Matt preached on last week some, the inner being, and there's talk of being rooted and grounded. The, the inner being, you, you might remember, the inner being here, we're talking about the heart and the understanding of the author's uh, when in, in this culture, in, in this context, when they talked about the heart, it, the heart was actually the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. We talk about the heart in our culture primarily as the emotional side of things, right? Uh, the, the heart, and then we have the mind, that would be the intellect, uh, and, and the will, maybe. Uh, but in, in this understanding, when he talks about your inner being, when he talks about your heart, he's talking about your mind, your will, and your emotions. He wants to engage all three. That, that there's a, a way to engage with the gospel that would be at the emotional level. We're moved emotionally, but we're not engaging our minds or our will. We're, we're not engaging with our actions and, and what we would do with this. And there's a way to engage the mind that is devoid of emotion and, and also does not engage the will. He wants to engage all three here, right? We're talking about the inner being. And, and in that inner being, I need you to be rooted and I need you to be grounded, right? The, the language of a root here, like the, the roots of a tree that go deep underground that hold fast to the firm ground, right? There are multiple roots for a tree these, these are doctrines. This is our theology. This is what he's been talking about in the first three chapters of this letter. All these doctrines, all these theologies, you need to be deeply rooted in them. They need to, to go deep into the ground. They need to hold you fast to the unshakable ground. And then the, the language of, of being grounded uh, gives us the, the image of a, a, the foundation of a building. Right before we would build a, a building, we would, we would dig out and pour a foundation. 
And, and they might, in their day, lay, starting with a cornerstone and building out a firm foundation, which then the floor and the walls and the roof is all going to be built on this firm foundation. So that's the language we're talking about here, rooted and grounded. Our theology has to be thorough. Our, our, our understanding of the gospel must reach into all of these different areas before we move on to the next thing, before we move on to the deeper things, before we move on to the, the real guts of the hope that we have. But before we get to that, he's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in their inner being, engaging the mind, the will, and the emotions. This is what he's been setting up for three chapters. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that doctrine relates to the Christian life as a map relates to a city. Right, that, that if you're going to a new city that you've never been to before, um, I actually, in... Uh, uh, in high school, my family traveled to New York City. Uh, this was um, quite a while ago, but uh, we, we got some books, some travel books before we, we went, right? I wanted to wrap our head around the city. I was like 16 or something. I, I wanted to understand. Here was my goal at 16. I did not want to walk around like the coolest city in the world and look like a tourist. This was my entire goal. I'm like, I want to look like I belong. All right, I'm going to walk around New, New, New York like a native New York person. My mom's idea of our vacation was slightly different. She was going to look like a tourist. Uh, no, like through and through, she was going to look like a tourist. I'm like, no, mom, I got to get this figured out. So I, I took the travel books myself and I read through, and, and New York is actually laid out in a really brilliant way all, all through Man Manhattan Island, right? The, the way they lay out the, the blocks and the streets, and you can, with an address, you can figure out where you need to go and how many blocks away it is, and and everything's, you know, kind of symmetrical, and I loved it. I was, like, eating this up, and I studied the map because I wanted to go to the city and, and know how to navigate, know how to find my way around without having to rely on anyone else, without having to look like some sort of stupid tourist. Uh, so I studied the map, and, and by studying the maps, I was able to understand how one place relates to another. I was able to understand how I might find my way from one side of town to another, when to take the, the subway or when to take a taxi or when to walk and that sort of thing, right? This is what our doctrine does for our faith. It's, it's the map. It helps us. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. This helps us to understand how we can navigate around the real Christian experience and faith. But the map is not the place. Having poured over and studied those maps as a 16-year-old, had I visited New York? No. Had I experienced New York? No, did I know what it was like to live in New York? Not at all. Not at all. The, the, the map gives you references. It gives you an understanding of how to navigate the real thing. But it is not a substitute for the real thing. And our doctrines here, our, our doctrine, our understanding of, of the deep things of, of theology, they're merely the map for the real Christian experience. But they are not a substitute for the experience itself. Does that make sense? Does this make sense here? That, that as, as Paul has for three chapters been laying out uh, some, some doctrines and, and some understanding of, of the gospel, uh, he's giving us the map, and now we're, now we're gonna delve into experience. Now we're gonna go to the, to the real city. Now we're going to see where that doctrine uh, you know, the rubber meets the road, as they say, to mix metaphors here. Uh, th th this, is, this is where it becomes real. 
So this is, these are the roots, this is the grounding. And we can move into the big stuff if you think you're ready. Now, if you have missed that which should root us and ground us, I don't have time to go into all of it this morning. That would be to recap the last three chapters. But if you have missed any of it, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast uh, and, and listen to the other sermons. I encourage you to go back and read chapters one through three of Ephesians. It's important that you be rooted and grounded that you have the map, that you read it, that you study it so that you know how these things relate to the real Christian experience. But now we're gonna dive deeper because this is where the answer to our question lives. When, when things are getting hard, in fact, when our coming to Jesus makes things harder rather than easier, what Paul tells us next is how we address that. This is how we prepare ourselves. This is how we get through this Christian life. In, in one word, I would say, survey. We need to survey. We need to survey the cross. We need to survey the love of God. We need to take measurements of it. In fact, the wording that Paul uses here reminds me of some imagery in Revelation when, when the Apostle John is, is taken by an angel and they go and, and he begins to measure heaven. He begins to measure New Jerusalem and the gates and the walls that await us. He, he, he surveys heaven. The, the, God is telling John, I want you to know what's coming. I want you to understand what's coming. I want you to see how big and how wide and how deep and how long this is. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here to us in verse 18. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Surveying God's love, surveying the cross is a task which Christians will be about their entire lives. This is the higher thing. This is the deeper thing. To survey God's love will take us on a journey that we will not end on this side of heaven. I do not think we will end that journey on the other side as well. To survey God's love takes us down a path of, of infinity. It takes us down a, a path of, of endless exploration. Let us survey the breadth. What is the breadth of God's love? What is the width of God's love? Who is included? Well, the Jew and the Greek. Right? The Jew and the, the Gentile, the, the non-Jew. Who does that include? Well, that includes everyone. Right? The, the breadth of God's love includes men and it includes women and it includes those who are not sure the breadth of God's love includes uh, a king and it includes the servants serving in the king's court it includes everyone from the highest of highs in society to the lowest of lows who does Jesus spend his time with He's arguing with the religious elites 
the Pharisees, the scribes. And when one of them, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, one of the Pharisees breaks away at night, breaks away from his fellows and comes to talk to Jesus in the cover of night because he's curious. He says, what, what are you all about? You must come from God. I've seen the things you're doing. What are you all about? And Jesus sits and he has a conversation with the religious elite. And he calls him to repentance. And he has a conversation with the, the woman who is caught in the act of adultery and dragged before Jesus probably wearing nothing or next to nothing, ashamed, horrified, petrified, thrown at the feet of Jesus. And they say, should we stone her now or what? And Jesus defends her. He comes to her aid. He talks with her. He calls her to repentance. And she follows him. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, the breadth of of the love of God includes all of that. All of it. Every people from every tribe speaking every language across all of the earth. From ancient human history on into the future until Jesus returns. The breadth of God's love includes all of it. Everyone. There is no one excluded that God does not call to repentance to believe in him. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Look at the breadth. Survey the breadth. See how wide this invitation is. We could spend, and I encourage you to spend the rest of your life surveying the breadth of the love of God. You will find no end to the left or to the right. That is how wide his love is. The breadth of God's love leaves us with no, no room or opportunity for prejudice against anyone. Because God's love extends to everyone, right? Then let us survey the length. He says the, the breadth and the length, the height and the depth. Let us see the length. Um, I, I, I heard this example, I think, from uh, Charles Spurgeon. In fact, a, a lot of this comes from Charles Spurgeon and Tim Keller. Let me uh, give full credit to those guys right now. Um, Charles Spurgeon talks about the, the length of God's love. And he says, if Christ would ponder us, let me make this personal. If Christ would ponder me and my condition and my hopeless state for 10 minutes out of all of eternity, it would be more than I ever deserved from him. And I'm not even talking about saving me. I'm just saying if he even gave 10 minutes of thought to a wretched sinner like me, of all of eternity, it would be more than I could ever deserve or hope for. 
But he does more, so much more. He ponders our condition as wretched sinners from the moment we're born to the moment we die. But it doesn't end there. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, he ponders us from the cross 2,000 years ago. He sees you and he ponders your condition. But the cross is not the fountainhead. That's not where it began. Because we have in Isaiah and in Psalms and throughout the, the prophets of the Old Testament promises that God is thinking on us already. Right? And it goes back further still. When, when God makes the promise to Abraham and he promises that he will be a blessing to all the nations, that his offspring will be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore without number. God knew already what he was doing for you and for me. And not even that moment is the fountainhead. It goes back further still because God told Eve and Adam in the garden at the moment they fall, he comes and he seeks them out and he says, your offspring will bruise Satan's head. What is that talking about? That's Christ who will come and defeat death on the cross, who will be buried and who will raise again. The plan for our salvation was set even then, and that's not the fountainhead either. It goes back further. Paul told us that before the foundations of the earth, God had set in place his plan of salvation. Survey the length of God's love. Is this not amazing? Could we not ponder this and dive into this for all of our lives? And in Hebrews 13, 5, the author of Hebrews uh, says, I, I will, God tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, which of course is a quote from Deuteronomy 31, 6. Let me read Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. When will God forsake us? Never, 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 never. For all of eternity going into the future, will God ever forsake us? The answer is no. The length of his love, we can look into eternity past and see how far back it goes. And we can turn around 180 degrees and look infinitely into the future and we see his love continuing. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is with us to the end. You see how long is God's love once he has us, once he holds us in his grip, he does not let go. John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus is telling 
uh, telling some people in that day, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. That is everlasting life, life that goes on forever. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There is such great news in this, and I want to make sure we don't miss this. I am someone, okay? You are someone. When he says no one can snatch you out of my hand, does that include me? Does that include you? Are we able to remove ourselves from God's grace? Not a chance. We do think awfully highly of ourselves. But we cannot outrun God's grace and his mercy. That's how long it is. His love for us goes beyond our stamina. We cannot run so far. We cannot uh, flee him and leave God exhausted and outrun his love. He goes, he goes so far beyond where we could ever run. Right? He goes so far beyond. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 139 talks about this, that there is nowhere we can go in all of the earth and, and heaven and, and, and under the earth, there's nowhere we can go where God is not there extending his love and his grace and his mercy to us. As we survey the length of God's love, all discouragement is rid from our sight. Every idea that we might have placed ourselves outside of God's mercy is dashed to pieces. Any idea that, that we've messed something up beyond his forgiveness is crushed. When we survey the length of God's love, we see just how long it is. And it puts all those negative thoughts away. So we move on and we survey the depth, the depth of God's love. And this is exciting. This is exciting. And I actually think, as depressing as this may be, <coughs> to start with, I think we first, to really understand the depth of God's love, I think we first have to survey the depth of our own sin. Every year that has gone by that I've been a Christian, I sin less. This is part of progressive sanctification, that as we become more and more like God, uh, more, more and more like Jesus, we follow him, he is working out sin, and we are leaving it behind. There are sins that used to occupy my time in years gone by that no longer occupy my time today. This is the progression of a Christian. And yet, with each year that goes by, I am tenfold more aware of the sin I still have to deal with. I hope you share in this experience. I think if you do not share in, in this experience, uh, you've maybe been sold a bill of goods. Christianity, as, as we follow God, as we get nearer to him, he shines a light into the dark places of our heart. 
When I first come to Jesus, I'm pretty far away and the, and the light only covers things on the surface. I see those surface level sins and, and Jesus deals with them. The Holy Spirit comes into my heart and he starts working out the fruit of the Spirit and I start leaving those things behind. But as I draw nearer, the light starts shining deeper into my heart and I start seeing areas that I didn't even know were sin before. I didn't even know how deep the wickedness went into my heart. There is not a day this side of heaven where I will be completely free of all sin because the sin problem runs so deep in our hearts. There is wickedness underneath the wickedness. And as we dig this up, we find deep in our hearts that the motivations behind the good things I do are wicked. Right? Even when I get up here and preach, deep in my heart is all kinds of wickedness that would want you to see me as, as uh, uh, able and, and, and successful and accomplished in the thing that I do. And I have to repent of that. The, the wickedness runs deep. And as we draw nearer to God, we see just how problematic our hearts are. We see the, the total depravity. We see how, how, how sin has blackened the innermost parts. And God is redeeming that and he's fixing that. But for each layer, I feel like he fixes. I see 10 more layers deep that I need to go into my heart. And he's gonna do that. He's gonna keep going. He's gonna keep digging. He's gonna keep pulling this stuff up. Here's the incredible news. Here's why I don't just like wallow in depression at the thought of the, the depth of the wickedness of my heart because no matter how deep I go and how much sin I find in layers buried underneath the other sins, there is God's love to meet me. And it's deeper still. No matter how deep the sin goes in our hearts as we survey the depth of my own sinfulness, as, as you survey the depth of your own sinfulness, look around and see that God's love has beaten you to it. There is no depth that his love doesn't, doesn't plunge to. There's no depth that he's not already at. Look at how far Jesus descends to love us. Jesus who is forever, eternally, with God the Father, Jesus who was present at creation, Jesus sitting on a throne on high, leaves that throne. Philippians 2, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, as if that was not low enough already for God to descend for the purpose of saving us from our sin, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did Jesus become a man, which we could never deserve, God descending that far. But he didn't stop there. He took on the appearance of a servant. Remember, at the Last Supper, he takes off his outer garment and he gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes the nasty feet of his disciples. 
in this incredible act of service, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He lowers himself to a servant and then he goes beyond that. He allows himself to be killed. He lowers himself to the point of death. Do you see the depth now as Jesus is plunging into the depth of God's love, how deep this is getting? He allows himself to be killed. And not an ordinary death, but death on a cross that's even lower still. Psalm 22, Jesus says, well, the psalmist says, and and it's Jesus' prophecy, Jesus will say this essentially. Okay, Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Dying on the cross, he becomes even lower. He describes, it's, it's like I'm a worm, like the lowest form of being. That's how scorned and despised Jesus is by the people he came to save. Survey the depth of God's love. You will find no bottom to it. Paul wants us to spend our entire lives surveying the depth of God's love and he knows we will not find the bottom to it. I think of the the hymn, How Precious is the Flow That Makes Me White as Snow. Right? As Jesus' blood flows like, like a river. And how deep is this river? It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond what we can fathom or imagine. Oh, how deep a river it is. As we survey the depth of God's love, we can get rid of all self-pity as we see what what extents he went to, to to love us, to redeem us, to capture us. And finally, we survey the height. We survey the height of God's love. The, the height, I think, is, is the forward-looking aspect of our faith. As we survey the height, this is what's not yet to come, or what has not yet come. This is, this is the, the hope that we wait on. 1 John 3 tells us that it has not yet appeared, that we are, we are in the kingdom, but we are waiting for the fullness of the kingdom. We are waiting for Jesus to return in power. We are waiting for the eternity that he promises us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He fully knows me now. But what I see is a dim reflection. As we spend our entire lives surveying the love of God, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, know that you will never go beyond a dim reflection of what the the, the real extent is. But the day is coming when we will see as face to face.
when we will not have to peer through that murky glass, but we will see him fully. All of our efforts now leave us, you know, maybe ever clearer, right? Like smearing the smudges around the the glass. We, We maybe get a little clearer view and a little clearer view as we mature in Christ, but know that it is still, it is still a dim reflection. What is to come, the height that awaits us is beyond comprehension. And he wants us to be where he is. Jesus has gone on ahead of us and is preparing a place for us. That's the height of his love as we survey that, Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our call is to keep our eyes fixed on the things that are above. Keep our eyes fixed on that which is the height of God's love. Keep our eyes fixed on that which is to come. Remember that we are adopted as children, Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance that we share in that we do not fully recognize this side of heaven. The height of God's love, that which he wants to give us, that which he will give us in time is without measure. Survey the height. Survey the height and find in that the hope. So as the Ephesians are struggling with their pastor being locked up, as I was struggling with The reality that even though I had become a Christian, my wife was leaving, and in fact, maybe because I was a Christian, she was running away faster. She's gonna flee this strange new phenomenon that was happening. Paul says, survey. Look into these things. Make sure you're rooted. Make sure you're grounded. Know your doctrines. Study the doctrines like a map. You wanna know this. But the real Christian experience is when we get into surveying the love of God. This is the deep stuff. This is the intense side of Christianity as as we get into this and and we study and we research and and we lean into and and we experience the, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. This is where rubber meets the road. This is where faith takes shape in our lives. Some of you have been Christians a lot longer than I have. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure you would agree. You know this to be true. We survey. We, we grow in our understanding. We grow in our depth and our faith. And we survey some more. And we find that God's love goes deeper. It's wider, it's longer. 
what he has for us is higher. We can press into this forever and never find the end of it. And in that we find our hope for the things, the trials that we face here. Let me pray and we'll go to communion. God, in this room is represented a a lot of different situations, a lot of different places. And God, I know that that the answer to the, the struggle we're facing is found as we survey the cross, as we survey your love, as we delve deeper, as we see the the width and the length and the depth and the height of your love, God, help us to understand it anew. Help us to understand how, how powerful your love is for us. Help us to grow in this. In Jesus' name.